Well, good morning again. It is uh, truly a joy to have you with us this morning. I should have introduced myself earlier. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and just so glad that you are here with us. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Colossians as we dive right into the scriptures. As you leave this morning or as you entered, you may have noticed that there was a chair set up outside the uh, doors to the gathering space that had some books that look like this. This is a scripture journal. It's for both Colossians and Philippians. We wanted to make these available to you uh, as we began our study here in the book of Colossians. So uh, on the right-hand side of every page, there's a blank space for you to either take notes here in the gathering or to uh, journal at home as you uh, spend time in the Word of God. So these are just $4 a piece. Uh, that just covers our cost. If you'd like to grab one on your way out, all you need to do, um, if you're able to, is go on to the Sojourn website and uh, donate $4 at some point uh, later on today or this week. We'd love to invite you to grab one of these if that would interest you. So we're going to be spending our time uh, in the first several verses of Colossians, actually really through verse 8. But before we read our passage, I have a question that's not intended to be a joke. Okay, it truly is not. I want to make that clear at the beginning, but it is a comparison. What do New Year's resolutions and the global pandemic have in common? What do New Year's resolutions and the global pandemic have in common? Well, there's probably several things you could come up with, but the one I want us to focus on is this. This, they both touch upon the power to change something or some things. So at the turn of every year, our culture is uh, very much aware of the power to change as we think about making resolutions. Whether, it, whether it's a new gym membership or a Bible reading plan or a special diet or a book count, we often discover that our ambitions and our desires to change, our capacity or our willpower to change, actually doesn't match our ability to accomplish those changes. The power to change some things can be elusive. Now let's compare that with the effects of a pandemic that has changed things significantly and has held the world captive for almost two years. The virus has forced significant changes in our culture and society at large. That pandemic had a power to change which it wields with destructive force. Now, we are all too familiar with our weak power to change when it comes to New Year's resolutions, and we are all way too familiar with the destructive power to change that comes with a pandemic. But as we turn to the book of Colossians, Paul's words remind us that there is a 2,000-year-old constructive power that's at loose in the world. And it's a power that actually changes everything. So keep that in mind as we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on, our, on your behalf and has made to known to us your love in the Spirit. Now you may remember that Paul did not plant this church at Colossae. It was probably planted by Epaphras, whom he references there in verse 7. But as Paul observes the Colossian believers' lives, he notices multiple things about their lives that he believes deserves thanksgiving. He highlights their faith. He highlights their love. And both that faith and that love has been inspired or produced by their hope. But rather than congratulating them for these realities, what does Paul do? He thanks God. Why? Well, Kelvin is helpful here. Now, he thanks God rather than the Colossians for these things. He shows that faith and love are the very gifts of God and do not come from ourselves as men always imagine through a devilish pride. Paul did not play the hypocrite in giving thanks to God for the faith and the love of the Colossians. If every man was able to believe and have faith voluntarily, or, or could get it by some power of his own, the praise for it ought not to be given to God. For it would be mockery to acknowledge ourselves indebted to God for something we had, have obtained, not from him, but from somewhere else. But here, Paul blesses God's name for enlightening the Colossians in the faith and for framing their hearts to make them loving. It is to be concluded, therefore, that everything comes from God. All of these good things brought about by the gospel at work in them is from God. So the title of this sermon is this, Thank God It's the Gospel. Thank God It's the Gospel. And here's the big idea. This is the, what the entire sermon will be driving towards, this point. Thank God because the gospel changes everything. Thank God because the gospel changes everything. Unlike the annually weak power that we have to, to change our lives by New Year's resolutions, and unlike the destructive but limited power of a pandemic, the gospel is the eternal power of God wielded be on behalf of those who seek refuge in Him. And thank God the gospel changes everything. So what does the gospel change? Well, first... The gospel changes the object of our faith. If you think about our culture, one of the commands that our culture gives to us almost every single day in a variety of ways is, or can be summed up in one word. It is the command to believe. Just believe. In a culture that has dispensed with the idea of God, the inconvenient idea of a personal and powerful God, it's no surprise that the message we hear is a verb that requires an object, but they don't give us the object. It's just 
Believe. Believe in what? Believe in whom? We're not told. Just believe. Or maybe you've heard it this way. I just have faith. I just have faith that everything's going to work out. Just believe in yourself. Just follow your heart. These commands leave us with no grounding. In reality, they're an imperative with no foundation. This is the essence of legalism. The command of our culture to just have faith or just believe to effect change should sound hollow and hopeless. They are untethered and unanchored legalistic commands. They're empty words, they're desperate ideas, and ultimately they're foolish. We might as well sing the little nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. And I'm forgetting the rest of it, but we're supposed to believe on the first star you see at night. And I think I just confused two different nursery rhymes. That's okay. Others will borrow this idea of faith, and they'll take it a step further. They'll say that, yes, you need to believe, but you are actually the only appropriate object of your faith. So you are to believe in yourself. You're to trust your heart. At least faith now has an object. It's not just believe, it's believe in yourself. But the problem with advice like that is this. Each of us live with ourselves almost constantly, right? I hope, anyway. And let's be honest. When the chips are down, when the stakes are high, are you really ready to risk everything to bank your security, your safety, your well-being entirely upon your own shoulders? Upon your wisdom, your intellect, your knowledge, your strength, your creativity, your industriousness. Now, many people are willing to bank everything on themselves, and that may actually work for a time. However, there's an expiration date on that type of faith because there's an expiration date on us. It's appointed unto men once to die. So if you live by that creed, believe in yourself, the problem is when comes your day to die, will just believing yourself really be enough to secure your well-being? There is not much gospel in that. There is not much good news in the thought of our culture. But, thank God, the gospel changes everything. It changes the object of our faith. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I love the intentionality of the order of these words, and I may have even mixed it up as I read it, because we're so used to saying Jesus Christ as if Christ is the last name of Jesus, right? But Christ is actually a title. It is the, the Greek word for the, mess, uh, the Hebrew word, Messiah. Paul is saying your faith in Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one, Jesus. God, through the gospel, had effected such a fundamental change in the Colossians' lives that they were no longer enslaved to the idols and the false gods of their culture, but the object of their faith was now Messiah Jesus, the sent one of God. 
the forgiveness of their sin and their present and their eternal well-being was no longer left to sacrifices or to the fickle whims of some deity within the culture. Rather, it was in the Son of God who loved them and who gave himself for them. You see, the gospel does that. The gospel frees us from the idols of our hearts and the idols of our culture and delivers our faith into the only proper receptacle, Jesus, the resurrected and reigning Messiah. Because the gospel changes everything. Second, not just the object of our faith is changed by the gospel, but also the gospel changes the direction of our affections. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. What marked the Colossian believers as culturally distinct was the love that they had for one another. And this was not an anomaly solely related to the Colossians. This is what the gospel does wherever it goes. Even legitimate, uh, let me back up, since the fall of man, the love of mankind has curved inward upon himself. We are naturally loving beings. Unfortunately, that love is usually focused inward towards us. Even legitimate love that somehow forces and manages its way to point outward towards others is often tainted with selfishness, right? We are often loving others so that we receive something back, whether security or satisfaction or companionship or control or something like that. You see, relationships become transactional. I love you so I can get something from you. I love you for what you can do for me. However, when the gospel shows up, the gospel radically alters the direction of our affections. You see, the gospel produces a sacrificial love that demonstrates and reflects the love that Jesus Christ showed for us by dying on the cross. Paul would write to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And the Apostle John would take it a step further and say this in chapter 4 of his first epistle, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The gospel enters our life by faith. And God, through that power, then explodes our self-centered world and begins to, re begins to rebuild it with a love that is outgoing, that is generous, that is constantly flowing outward. Like water, it is a love that is constantly seeking a path forward, seeking a way to descend into others' lives. This type of love is going to be a recurring theme throughout the book of Colossians, and we'll see that in later weeks. But what within the gospel inspires and produces this kind of love? 
Paul links this love to hope. And this is good news because the gospel changes everything. It changes the object of our faith. It changes the direction of our affections. And second, the gospel changes the location of our hope. Paul says, I thank God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the question ought to be, what is this hope? Here, it doesn't refer to an attitude. This is not a, I'm hopeful for something. No, the word hope is standing in for something that is actually hoped for. So what is it? What is the reality that is confidently expected by the Colossians that is able to produce this sort of love and this sort of faith? Well, we're given a hint in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. There we're told that, or rather Paul reminds the Colossian believers that they are to set their affections on things in heaven where Christ is and where their life in Christ is hidden. So what is the reality that they are confidently expecting that is capable of producing such love for others and such faith in Jesus Christ. It is the reality of their resurrection life. A resurrection life that they don't have to wait until the future to experience. It's a resurrection life that they possess right now and that they will experience in their, its fullness when Jesus returns. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the moment we placed our faith in Jesus, the moment we were buried with him in death, We were raised with him in resurrection, and Jesus shares his resurrection life with us right now. That's not something we need to wait for. That's something we are anticipating, yes, but also experiencing. That means right now, follower of Jesus, your future resurrection life will be no more real than it is this second. We will experience it differently, but it is no less real right now. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and we are participating in a resurrection quality life right now, and that is the hope that inspires love towards others. So practically, this means that we have a ground, a foundation for expressing love in tangible ways towards one another, even when we don't feel like it. Because the ground and inspiration of that love, which is the resurrection life that we share in Jesus, that exists outside of our current experiences, our temporal circumstances, our feelings, our emotions, our desires. This hope, this resurrection life is solid and factual. And we are experiencing right now, experiencing it right now, but it's not attached to anything physical. And so our love for one another is not based on feelings or on convenience, but it's based on realities brought outside of us to us by God through the gospel. So we as a church family, we have the privilege of leaning into this type of love-inspired hope on a daily basis. 
in our life groups, as we gather together on Sunday morning, as we text one another and call one another throughout the week, as we participate in conversations. But there's one more practical reality to draw from these first three truths that I want us to think about. When we see this type of faith in Christ Jesus, and when we see this type of hope that's outward-facing towards others, or this type of love, and when we see this hope at work in a believer's life, when we see those realities and we choose to draw attention to it and to celebrate it in others' lives, we are intentionally bringing glory to God. It is honoring to the Spirit of Christ at work within us to honor one another by pointing out how we see faith, hope, and love at work. There's a difference from this type of honor compared with flattery, right? Flattery is just non-truths in order for me to build you up to get something from you. But honor is rooted in truth. And one way we can practically love one another is to simply honor each other when these God-produced realities come to the surface. So what might, like, what might this look like? Well, it might look like this. Sister, I just want to honor you as I've seen you walk through a really dark valley. You've had much suffering, and yet your faith has been so clear. Your faith may have felt really shaky to you, but your trust in your Father through your suffering honors Him, and it encourages your brothers and sisters. So I thank God for you and for your faith. Or it might look like this. Brother, I want to honor you as I see the weariness in your eyes today. And I'm guessing it was a challenge to get here. And I can hear the tiredness in your voice, and yet you keep showing up to the gathering. Your presence among us is evidence that the work of God is producing hope that exists outside of your circumstances. It's leading you to love us well by giving of yourself to simply be here with us. And I want to honor you for that, and I want to praise God for that. This honoring of one another, this is what the gospel produces. See, the problem is, too often in church, we allow the gospel to exist as a set of facts to believe rather than allowing that gospel content to take root in such a way that it produces relational beauty. Because the gospel is not meant to exist in propositional statements alone. Yes, there are truths that must be believed. The gospel is content. But when the gospel is received and takes root, it creates a relational beauty among a group of people. This is what Jesus said. This is the way in which all men will know you are my disciples when you love one another. So thank God the gospel changes everything. It changes the object of our faith. It changes the direction of our affections. It changes the location of our hope. Fourth, 
it changes our perception of what's true. Look at the end of verse 5. Of this hope you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. Can you remember, believer, the first time the gospel came to you and took root within you? At that moment, God opened your eyes to see truth as it actually exists for the first time. We were blind, and now we see. But that seeing is not yet perfect. And the reality is, based on circumstances and suffering and challenges and attacks of the enemy, our seeing can go brighter or dimmer. Our ability to discern truth may be starker at one moment and dimmer at another. The gospel has forever changed our perception of what is true, but our perception of what is true can become clouded. So believer, let me ask you a question very directly to each of you. At rock bottom, at the lowest levels of thought, what do you believe about your current reality? What is defining your perception of what is really real? Emmanuel Nashville is a church in Nashville, surprisingly, which was pastored by Ray Ortland for many, many years. They have what they call the Emmanuel Mantra. Have any of you heard of this before, the Emmanuel Mantra? It's a story in three sentences, and it's something they repeat frequently. And here it goes. I am a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. That's a story they repeat to themselves frequently, and it has a formative effect. In those three sentences is encapsulated the heart of the gospel, and there is power in these types of stories. So what story are you telling yourself every day? Are you telling yourself that you're a failure with no hope? Are you telling yourself that you're a terrible parent, a selfish spouse, a complete wreck? If that's all you're telling yourself, if you stop there, then you aren't believing the gospel. Because that's not the whole story. It may actually be true. Folks, I am a complete wreck. I believe that wholeheartedly. And if you had observed my life the last two years, you could not help but agree with me. My heart is the idol factory that Kelvin wrote about 500 years ago. My affections for the good, the beautiful, and the true are weak and insipid on the best of days. And I can be incredibly selfish in my relationship with Elizabeth. And if you had glimpsed my life the last two years and I said, I'm a complete wreck, you would give a hearty amen. But my reality doesn't stop there. 
I am a complete wreck. But if I stop the story there, I'm not telling the whole truth. A half-truth is a total lie. So what is your perception of truth? Jack Miller, a pastor and professor in Pennsylvania for many years, used to say this frequently. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you could ever dare imagine. And you're more loved than you could ever have dared hope. Tim Keller, who was mentored by Jack Miller, has said it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That's the I'm a complete wreck part. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So brothers and sisters, hear me carefully. It may be that the sole reason you needed to walk through, walk through those doors this morning was for the next two minutes. You must bring yourself back to the gospel every single day. This is what we mean when we talk of preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's not enough to come hear it on Sunday morning. It has to be the air we breathe, the food we eat, and the water that we drink. Yes, you are weak. No, you can't handle it anymore. Yes, you fail often. Yes, you are a sinner. But that's not the whole truth. That is not your entire reality. That is but half of it. And the enemy would love to keep you there. But in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you could have ever possibly hoped for. In Christ, you've been given the hope of a resurrection life that is yours right now, regardless of whether or not you have the feels for it. So bring your brokenness and bask in the beauty of the gospel. Bring your weakness and your frailty and your hurt and your shame and your anger and your sin and your sorrow and your guilt and your weariness and bring it to the cross and lay it there. Stop telling yourselves have truths. See yourselves in Christ. Hear the words of the Father proclaimed over him and therefore over you who are in Christ. This is my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel message. Rest in it and be at peace. Allow the gospel to progressively and aggressively change your perception of what is actually true and do that by reminding yourself of it daily finally the gospel changes the size of our world the gospel changes the size of our world look at verse 5 because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you've heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So these are the verses that have ricocheted around my head like a pinball at Chuck E. Cheese all week. 
If you consider this, Paul wrote these words less than three decades after Christ had resurrected from the grave. Probably 25 years after. And Paul is saying that this gospel had produced fruit, not just in the Colossian believers, that, but that it had spread to the entire world. And you can see that in the book of Acts. But think about Paul's world versus our world today. Think about where you sit in Chattanooga, Tennessee, versus where Paul wrote from an Ephesian jail to Colossian believers. We stand on soil that was completely unknown to Paul and to Paul's world. And Paul uses language that reminds us of the creation account. He's intentionally pointing us back to Genesis to say that God is recreating something. He's multiplying and, and producing fruit, and he's doing so by the gospel. And the crazy thing is, Paul and the Colossian believers to whom he wrote are dead. But the gospel is not. 2,000 years later, and an ocean away, we as a church family are reading these words and understanding the depth of them to a reality that Paul could never have fathomed, could never have imagined. Here we stand, preaching the same gospel, watching it increasing, bearing fruit, multiplying, recreating right here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You see, the gospel changes the size of our world. We are part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves. We are part of a story, but we are not the whole story. And that's good news. We are part of something so much bigger. And that something of which we are a part of includes Bluegrass Community Church up in Lexington, Kentucky, and Pastor Mike Meredith. It includes Emmanuel Nashville and Ray Ortland up in Nashville. It includes Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. It includes the church in India, the church in Turkey, the church in Romania, Bulgaria, Chile, Argentina, Sudan. And this story includes what you are doing right now, today. The gospel really does change everything. What God in Christ has done for you changes everything about your reality and your existence. Everything is elevated. Every activity you engage in is now elevated. It's lifted to a greater plane of importance because right now, in this moment, whether you perceive it or not, God is at work in you through the gospel by means of his spirit. But he's also at work in the person next to you and behind you. And he's at work in brothers and sisters all over the city of Chattanooga. And he's at work in brothers and sisters in countries we can hardly pronounce who have already gathered for worship earlier today and those who will be gathering in the hours to come. That same spirit is at work through the gospel. So that means everything we put our hand to becomes an opportunity for sacred activity. So I would encourage you this week, I've made some pretty bold statements. The gospel changes everything. Try to come up with one idea, one reality, one scenario, 
one something about life that the gospel does not affect. No matter what you come up with, at least one of these five realities we've talked about will affect that one thing. Because the gospel changes everything. It changes the object of our faith, the direction of our affections, the location of our hope, the size of our world, and our perception of what is true. So that means nothing remains untouched. From watching the next episode of your favorite TV show, to the next conversation with a neighbor, to the next diaper change, fender bender, hospital visit, or business proposal. It's all been touched. It's all been changed, forever altered by the gospel. Irrevocably. Thank God. Because the gospel changes everything. Let's pray together. Father of our Lord Jesus, you have given us words of life today from your word. I pray that you would take these truths, that you would plant them deep in us, that you would shape and fashion us in your likeness. We ask that the light of Christ would be seen today by our acts of love, our deeds of faith, our words and posture of hope. Fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We praise you that the gospel changes everything. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever and ever. Amen.